Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 97. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. And I'm Dr. Patel. And to our listeners, we have a sad news. Um, Dr. Michael Schumann has departed the university and moved on to other opportunities in Kentucky. So he won't be our regular contributor. However, you will hear his voice, we promise, as guest speaker because he's very much interested in talking to our listeners. Moving forward, today talking about the title, Esprit Arrive Ascend, Making an Acronym Soup for Aspirin. And Dr. Patel, it sounds like today we're talking about the use of aspirin for primary prevention, specifically focusing on some newer literature out there. Yeah, it's been quite a bit of undertaking on understanding whether there is good evidence for aspirin in primary prevention. We know that there is clear benefit in secondary prevention, but the position on primary prevention has been tipping, and that's through um, a lot of different literature that's been out. And the three acronyms that you mentioned, Dr. Kane, they were randomized controlled trials published last year that actually compelled some of the governing organizations like AHA and ACC to update their recommendations. So in a nutshell, that's what we're going to discuss today. And just uh, for complete clarity, when we say primary prevention, that means uh, using aspirin in someone who's never had a heart attack or a stroke versus secondary prevention in someone who has had a heart attack and a stroke and you're trying to prevent a second one from happening. Absolutely. And that's correct. And it's good to make that distinction uh, when you are evaluating a patient in front of you. So Dr. Patel, can you kind of set the stage here with a, a case of a patient to kind of give the audience a typical patient where this scenario comes up? Sure. I mean, I've gotten a lot of such questions, but let's hear a case. We have a 66-year-old male with past medical history of hypertension, stage 2 CKD, and a recurrent VTUs on lisinopril 40 milligrams, warfarin 4 milligrams daily with the TTR of 72% over the last 3.5 years, and he's also taking aspirin 81 milligrams daily. He doesn't have any personal or family history of ASCVD, um, denies any current or past use of tobacco products. He tells us that he did, however, had a hospitalization about five months ago where he had a GI bleed and needed uh, to pack red blood cell transfusion. No bleeds since then or previous bleeds before that bleed. Blood pressure is well controlled and we measured it in the office today being 126 over 72 and pulse of 82. And so he's really, the question is that um, he listened to Good Morning America and there was they were talking about some updates and aspirin recommendation and wonders whether he needs to continue his aspirin or not. So um, that's the stage we're setting up. And uh, let's take a look at more details on aspirin to begin with. So really, you know, aspirin is an NSAID, right? So it's an NSAID just like all of the other NSAIDs like ibuprofen and naproxen. We actually just did kind of a, a large review on that topic. But aspirin is unique in that it's a COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitor. So it is inhibiting this enzyme that produces different compounds, including thromboxane A2. And thromboxane A2 is the thing that makes platelets stickier. So effectively, aspirin is covalently binding to COX-1 in this case, and that covalent binding makes it so that you don't make this thing to make your platelets stickier. 
Yep, and this binding is irreversible. So basically, you have to wait it out for the lifespan of platelets, which is seven days for the therapeutic effects of aspirin to go away. And this is where we use aspirin. This is how we use aspirin to prevent clots in the blood vessels and the reduction of the the atherosclerotic um, risk, we call it. Now, when I think about aspirin dosing, I always think about like the baby aspirin, which is probably the worst name for an aspirin dose, given that we don't give aspirin to children at all. But baby aspirin being in the US, 81 milligrams per day. Are there other doses that are out there, Dr. Patel? Sure. Um, European studies love to use 100 milligram because that's the dose available in Europe market. So some of the new studies that are out, and especially if they're multinational, you'll see a range of low-dose aspirin reported. We're going to, in a bit, talk about some historical perspective on where we stand as far as recommendation, and we'll elaborate more on what their quote-unquote low-dose ranges are. But let's just say, generally, in U.S., we're talking about 81 milligrams. And so for prevention, 81 milligram is generally used with some exception for secondary prevention where the higher dose is used. But we're talking about primary prevention here today, and we know that higher dose of 325 milligram is not better than lower dose. What we do see is higher doses are associated with higher bleeding risks. And specifically, when we talk about bleeding, one of the big issues with bleeding we, t- we think about is GI bleeding, because not only are you having this antiplatelet effect, but the compounds that COX-1 is inhibiting, those are important to maintain the mucosa of your, your stomach. So if you block that protective lining of your stomach, not only are your platelets less sticky, but now you've gotten rid of this protective lining that um, COX-1 was providing to you. Yeah, and as we talk about these trials, we are going to talk about the bleeding risk that they, the trials have you know brought forward. But think about it. Both of these doses 325 milligrams or 81 milligrams, they're both available over the counter. So some of these patients who come to you are not necessarily taking aspirin because their healthcare provider told them to take it. They're taking it just because their friends taking it, their family members taking it, and they just feel like it's readily available. So the use of aspirin doses, whether high or low, are higher than necessary in the market just because of there is no sound clinical judgment behind it. And if you think about it, like if you were to take aspirin as an analgesic, you're going to pump that dose up almost to like a thousand milligrams, depending on your indication that you're looking at. Absolutely. And we didn't even, we're not even going to talk about the analgesic doses, but that's absolutely true. Patients have that available at over-the-counter level too. So my favorite response when someone asks about aspirin for primary prevention is kind of like the Facebook status of it's complicated. You know, it really is complicated and it has been complicated for quite a while. So Dr. Patel, kind of walk us through some of the history of guideline recommendations with respect to aspirin as primary prevention. Yeah, so we we had studies going as far as 1989, but the studies that came somewhere between 2001 and 2014 didn't really show robust CB benefit for adding aspirin. And so looking at those trials, U.S. Preventative Service Task Force in 2016 developed this recommendation. And this, if you look at literature, it's been heavily cited the USPSTF um, 2016 recommendation. And so in a nutshell, what they recommended is use of 81 milligram aspirin daily. And there was a level B evidence for patients who were of age 50 to 59 with the 10-year cardiovascular disease risk of greater than 10%. Again, they also wanted to make sure these patients who were not at higher bleeding risk, that they had life expectancy of at least 
10 years who were willing to take low-dose aspirin for at least 10 years. So we're talking about shared decision-making involving patients' uh, personal choices here as well. So in the fifth decade of life, you said level B evidence. I assume that we have other levels for different age groups then. Correct. So it was a level C evidence for, again, same type of CV risk, 10% or above, but it was for 60 to 69-year-old patients. And when it came to patients younger than 50 or older than 70, there was just not enough evidence available to make any recommendations for those patients. So again, to reiterate, in 2016, we basically said if you're between 50 and 69 and you have an elevated cardiovascular risk for primary prevention, you may consider aspirin, but the level of evidence isn't great. And beyond those age groups of 50s to 60s, we just didn't have a lot of data to support a specific recommendation. And then besides the preventative task force, we have other organizations that weighed in. So we have the CHEST Association. So 2012 guidelines from CHEST said, you know, you can grade 2B evidence for uh, patients 50 years or older, use um, low-dose aspirin again, this definition was 75 to 100 milligrams daily. Looking at our patients with diabetes, American Diabetes Association in 2018 said it was a level C evidence for men and women with diabetes greater than 50 years of age with one or more risk factors. And those risk factors were either family history of premature cardiovascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, smoking, or albuminuria. And again, these patients had to be not at higher or increased risk of bleeding. And this dose uh, range was 75 to 162 milligrams daily. I think that's interesting. So just looking at the last three organization guidelines you mentioned, one says if you're above 50 but less than 70 with an elevated cardiovascular risk. One says if you're above 50 regardless of your cardiovascular risk. And then one says if you're above 50 and then you have some other risk factors, then you could consider it in addition to being a diabetic. Um, So I love it when guidelines disagree with each other or have different nuances because then that gets us away from the mantra of, well, the guidelines say dot, dot, dot. Then you start thinking about, well, why are there discrepant guidelines? You know, what literature exists that may make you push one way or the other, given that typically these guidelines are looking at the same data, right? Right. And if you think about it, the U.S. Preventative Task Force said 10-year CVD risk, right? So we know that there is a difference between CVD and ASCVD, where ASCVD includes stroke. So then the Stroke Association came out in 2014 and added their two cents because they didn't think that U.S. Preventative Task Force recommendations were uh, encompassing the stroke patient. So they said either 81 milligrams daily or 100 milligrams every other day. Not even sure where this is coming from. That's goofy. (laughs) Right. But level A evidence for patients with 10-year risk of greater than 10%. Again, we had to make sure the treatment benefits were outweighing the risk of bleeding. Um, And then they looked at individually for women um, with stroke prevention, um, as well as um, patients with CKD, and those were level B and level C evidences. And then sometimes I like to look across the pond and see, well, what do the Europeans say? Again, they're looking at the same data. What did the Europeans say with respect to aspirin for primary prevention? So this is way before the new Ascend, Esprit, and Arrive trials came out. The European Society of Cardiology had a level three recommendation. And if you um, skim through what the level three recommendation means is that do not use it for primary prevention because the risk of bleeding is higher than the benefits it confers. Awesome. So we literally have a European guideline that has the opposite recommendation of a number of American-based guidelines then. 
Right. And then if you think about all these guidelines, looking at that primary literature, that literature in the trials didn't have large number of patients on other drugs that also confer the acidity risk reduction benefits, such as statins, such as maybe ACE and ARBs. So that was the difference. And and then we know that those drugs have been game changer in this cardiovascular risk reduction. So then if I was to design the perfect trial, Dr. Patel, that trial would be older adults, because as we mentioned, above 70 years of age, we just didn't have a lot of data. Potentially, I'd want a more modern trial that had patients that were taking statins that had good blood pressure control, something that was more reflective of our current practice, right? So if only we had such a trial. Right. And also, don't forget the diabetes patients because they have twofold higher risk of cardiovascular disease, right? So when we talk about these three trials that Spree, Sun, and Arrive, they did just that. They were um, published in mid to late 2018, and patients were on statin. And if you were to break it down um, in a Spree, this was about 34% of patients in the Sun trial. 75% of patients were on um, statin. And in Arrive, uh, 43% of patients were on statin. And then besides these t- uh, three trials, we'll also look at a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in January in JAMA. And then looking at all this evidence, the AHAACC updated their guidelines in March. So let's dive a little bit deeper into what the evidence is. And for the listeners playing along at home, if you want to actually look at any of this primary literature, we'll have links on helixtalk.com episode uh, 97. And you're welcome to kind of go through and peel through the evidence on your own, knowing that we can only cover so much in a fairly brief podcast. Right. So first thing first, let's look at what's the evidence in elderly patient. And that's where the ESPRI trial comes in. It was a robust trial. We are looking at N of about 19,000 healthy elderly patient. They needed to be at least 70 years old. But when it came to African-American and Hispanic patient, they were greater than equal to 65 years old. So we had some robust patient population included in here. There were some percentage of patients with diabetes in here as well, about 11%. And the median follow-up time for this trial was 4.7 years. Again, they randomized patients on enteric coated 100 milligram aspirin versus placebo. Patients who were excluded were patients who were using other medications that can increase risk of bleeding, such as antiplatelets or anticoagulants, patients with super elevated blood pressure of 180 over 105. But they did allow patients who were using NSAIDs for short term at the lowest dose. In in terms of outcomes, so the primary endpoint was death, dementia, or persistent physical disability. There was no difference in that. They had a number of different secondary endpoints. One was cardiovascular disease events, and these were actually really similar. So 448 events versus 474 events, and the hazard ratio crossed one, so not significantly different. But they did show an increase in major hemorrhage. This was 361 events versus 265 events. And that hazard ratio is 1.38, meaning that a person taking aspirin versus placebo was 1.38 times more likely to experience a major bleeding event versus a placebo patient. And think about it. These are We are talking about older patients. So the risk of bleeding, if you compare it to a younger, healthy individual, will be a slightly higher baseline risk anyways. 
What interesting finding came out of this trial was that the all-cause mortality in aspirin group was uh, increased by 14%. Now, don't be alarmed. This was not due to the um, major hemorrhage or um, cardiovascular, but it was mainly driven by the increased cancer risk. And particularly, we were looking at colorectal cancer deaths. And this was actually a really interesting finding because previous literature almost supported the use of NSAID, specifically aspirin, for the prevention of GI cancers. And this really didn't support that at all, which I found was really interesting. Yeah, and again, looking at the patient population, this was healthy, older patient population. So we can say that maybe not so much for those patients, but we quite maybe don't know the evidence for younger patients and colorectal prevention. So Esprit basically said among elderly patients who were uh, 65 to 70 plus years of age, fairly robust study, large study, no difference in cardiovascular disease, increased risk of bleeding, and maybe even uh, a signal of some harm associated with uh, GI cancers. Yep, and that's in a nutshell the summary of the Esprit trial. The second trial was in my turf, the ASCEND trial. It was basically a study of cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes, again, focused on primary prevention. Also robust and large trial with an end on about 15,000 patients. Um, these were patients who were older than 40 years old with diabetes, but didn't have any previous cardiovascular disease. Median follow-up was pretty long, 7.4 years. And the intervention was same as a spree, looking at 100 milligram of enteric-coated aspirin versus placebo. And what we found in this trial was the relative risk reduction was 12% when we look at non-fatal MI, stroke, transient ischemic attacks, TIA, or vascular uh, death. And that was excluding the intracerebral hemorrhage. But if you look at all these events separately, there was no benefit for a specific cardiovascular event. And interestingly enough, if you look at that Kaplan-Meier curve, the benefit was only seen for the first five years. It was kind of lost thereafter while the trial lasted for 7.4 years. So of course, we're that's great that we've benefited basically cardiovascular problems by 12%. Certainly, there must be a trade-off to that, right? There is, there is. So then this one looked at bleeds, right? So there were major bleeds defined as GI bleeds, cerebral hemorrhage, or bleeds that would threaten the eyesight. And this was 29% higher in patients who were taking aspirin versus those who were taking placebo. And if you put that in perspective, the number needed to treat versus number needed to harm, this was 91 patients needed to be treated to prevent one serious vascular event, while the number needed to harm was 112 to cause one major bleed. So we have this trial results, but what does the ADA 2019 set? Looking at the results of the ASCEND trial, ADA 2019 loosened up their recommendation. It was always a level C recommendation previously as well, but this one was kind of just broadened up. They said it's still level C recommendation for those who have diabetes and increased cardiovascular risk after a discussion on their benefit versus risk of bleeding. So they are basically now turfing this to an individual clinician and asking them to look at the patient holistically and divvy up the risk versus benefit and assign aspirin therapy accordingly. And I mean, hopefully this would be part of a shared decision-making discussion with the patient, right? So if you have an older 
alcoholic patient who takes a lot of ibuprofen, maybe you should not give them aspirin. But if you have someone who's younger that has really high risk of cardiovascular disease in the next five to 10 years and a low bleeding risk, maybe you would be more apt to give them aspirin. This is more of a patient-specific thing versus a blanket recommendation then. Absolutely. Yep, yep. So got to have that one-on-one discussion for sure. So then there's a third trial, uh, the ARRIVE trial. This is aspirin to reduce risk of initial vascular events. So this was about 12,000 patients. It included men about 55 years of age with two to four risk factors or women more than 60 years of age with three or more risk factors. The 10-year risk was around 8 to 9%. So this would be classified as a low to intermediate risk population. Similar to the other two trials, they gave 100 milligrams of aspirin versus placebo, followed them for five years. Because we already had a study of patients with diabetes, we excluded diabetics, we excluded those with a history of GI bleeding, uh, concurrent antiplatelets, anticoagulants, and frequent NSAID use, which is consistent with the other exclusion criteria we talked about. And because only 61% of the patients were adherent, this led to a per-protocol analysis, meaning that they only kind of investigated those that stayed on therapy and kind of did what they're supposed to within the trial. Yep, and um, adherence rate for the other trial is out there, and it's at par with this trial too, but this um, study investigators kind of decided to look at the per-protocol analysis. And what they found was that aspirin did not decrease the combined outcome, and that was the cardiovascular outcome of first MI, stroke, cardiovascular death, unstable angina, or TIA. But the bleeding events, especially the GI bleeding events, were more than twice as likely in patients taking aspirin versus them taking placebo. So that was one analysis, and they, they because of the per-protocol analysis, um, they were able to find some benefit, uh, fatal and non-fatal MI by 47%. But again, this is not an intent-to-treat analysis. So what was kind of the overall take-home point given that they had different analyses and a fairly significant risk of taking aspirin? Right. And so this is an overall conclusion of all three trials is that aspirin provides no additional benefits for primary prevention in patients who work greater than 70 or non-diabetic patients in who um, 10-year event rate or 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease is less than 20% who are at higher risk of bleeding. So Again, if you break it down, there's no evidence for older patients, not clear evidence. Diabetic patients do confirm some benefit. However, patients who are not diabetic and their primary 10-year risk of ASCVD is lower than 20%. Um, Again, the evidence is kind of um, blurry. And we always have to, again, evaluate their risk of bleeding as well. So... What they define as high ACVD risk was greater than 20% risk. So again, for the listeners, if, if you come across the statement high ACVD risk, um, most of these trials had defined that greater than 20% risk, and this was calculated by the pooled um, cohort equation of the AHACC in 2013 guidelines. So what I love to look for when there's a, a bunch of kind of muddy trials where they have differing conclusions is a great review and meta-analysis. And it sounded like uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that JAMA recently published a systematic review and meta-analysis, including these trials in addition to other trials that have historically been out there. Right. So they, they pulled pretty much all randomized controlled trials up until November of 2018, with at least 1,000 participants who didn't have 
uh, any cardiovascular disease and who were placed on aspirin versus placebo as the interventions. And so what this meta-analysis looked at was 13 trials with 164 some thousand patients and a patient or a participant follow-up um, year of more than a million. And they were looking at patients with the median age of 62 years. The range was 53 to 74, again, kind of meeting those requirements of other trials we looked at. 47% of the patients were men. They had a good number of patients with diabetes, about 19%. And that median baseline risk of cardiovascular event, we were talking about that 10-year risk, uh, was about 9.2% at par with some of these trials. The two main things that they looked at, which is what we've been talking about this whole episode, is cardiovascular risk prevention. Um, So aspirin was associated with a decrease in the composite of cardiovascular outcomes. The hazard ratio was 0.89, so an 11% reduction. The absolute risk reduction was 0.38%, meaning that if your 10-year risk was 10%, this brought you down to 9.6%. The number needed to treat there was 265 Yep, and if we look at the flip side, uh, where we were looking at major bleeding events, aspirin was also associated with the increased risk of major bleeding compared to no aspirin. This hazard ratio was 1.43, and absolute risk reduction was 0.47%. So if you look at the number needed to harm, it was 210. So focusing on the number needed to harm versus number needed to treat, 210 patients to harm cause a bleed versus 265 patients to um, save an event or prevent an event. Um, It tells us that number needed to harm was obviously more than number needed to treat. So basically, as a a general rule of thumb, that means that you're more likely to cause harm giving aspirin for primary prevention, although you should recognize that number needed to treat and number needed to harm are sensitive to the baseline risk. So if someone has a really, really low risk of bleeding and a really high risk of cardiovascular events, they probably will benefit from it. And the converse is also true. If they have a a fairly low 10-year risk, let's say less than 10%, um, but they're older with risk factors for bleeding, then they probably will be even more likely to have harm than the number needed a harm of 210. Yes, absolutely. And that's why the meta-analysis was laying out the foundation that the baseline risk was about 9.2%. Really critical to understand that. Absolutely. So following those three randomized controlled trials and the JAMA meta-analysis and systematic review, we have the updates and recommendations from AHA-ACC. And this is what brought forward the news and the Good Morning America, et cetera, et cetera. And so breaking down, what are those recommendations? It's a level A recommendation for using low-dose aspirin for primary prevention in adults 40 to 70 years of age with higher, again, higher ACVD risk. This higher risk is Greater than 20% 10-year risk for patients who don't have diabetes, but greater than 10% risk for patients with diabetes who are not at increased risk of bleeding. So then it's a level B recommendation that you should not recommend low-dose aspirin routinely for primary prevention in very elderly adults, anyone above 70 years of age. And they recognize that if someone is 69 years old and they're on aspirin, then they have their birthday, they turn 70, it's not really clear what to do for them. My personal bias would be if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of problem. So if they've been tolerating therapy for many, many years, 
why take that away? Clearly, they have a lower bleeding risk than other people who are on aspirin for a couple of weeks and experience a GI bleed. Right. And I mean, you may have to evaluate. You're going to see this patient at least once a year, I'm hoping, um, with Medicare um, physicals and stuff. But you have to time and time again evaluate their risk of bleeding, which it's a reality that none of these trials or even the guidelines talk about how to evaluate the bleeding risk. And that's where we're going to talk about the level C, limited data evidence. Is don't use aspirin for primary prevention in those with increased bleed risk. The, the drawback here when it comes to bleeding risk is that we don't have a tool that these trials use to assess patients' bleeding risk. They kind of came up with their own assessment on how to define bleed risk. And so Right now, what we are working with when we're assigning patients bleed risk is just a list of things such as history of previous GI bleed or peptic ulcer disease or bleeding from the other sites, you know, looking at patients age greater than 70, having a history of thrombocytopenia, coagulopathy, chronic kidney disease. They're using medications that can increase risk of bleeding, such as the NSAIDs or the anticoagulants and the steroids. So um, that's where we are at. And I would even add to that list alcoholism. I see a ton of alcoholics that both have uh, peptic ulcer disease or gastritis caused by alcohol abuse, but also fall risk. So typically in patients that get drunk a lot, they also fall a lot because of imbalances. That's also another huge risk factor in my mind from the patients that I see. Yeah, and, and the organization really understands that we don't have the right means to calculate the bleeding risk and we should be looking at patient individually. Mm-hmm. Um, So why don't we go back to our patient case, our 65-year-old gentleman who is currently on aspirin and warfarin. He's never had a cardiovascular event in the past, although he does have plenty of risk factors for bleeding, specifically a hospitalization for GI bleed five months ago, and he's concurrently on warfarin. So he actually would have been excluded from the trials we talked about because of his warfarin use. Right. So he's he's still within that recommended age range, right? He's not above 70. Otherwise, it would have been easy to say like, mm, maybe, maybe not. But he doesn't have personal history of ACVD. His overall ACVD risk seems to be low, but his bleeding risk is high. He just had an event. Um, he's on uh, warfarin. So that's an anticoagulant that increases the risk. Um, so yeah, we, we could say right now that he's okay to stop taking the aspirin. But if he was a patient who had an MI in past, obviously we're looking at secondary prevention picture. And at that point, aspirin will continue. So Dr. Patel, if you were to discontinue aspirin on this patient, is there any need to do any tapering or any other strategy? Or do you just stop cold turkey? No, cold turkey stopping is completely fine. We can go ahead and have him just say, take your last dose today if you've taken it. Don't worry about taking the evening dose. If you have you know, yet to be taken it, they can stop it right then. There's no need to taper. No, at least in my experience, and keeping in mind I don't work in primary care, I work in intensive care. So typically we try to not change chronic medications for patients unless it's the reason they came to the hospital, like a new bleeding event. But I know anecdotally it's hard to stop medications. It's really easy to start new medications. So in my head I'm envisioning a pharmacist making the recommendation, hey, let's get rid of that aspirin, and a number of questions coming up like, well, it's just a low dose, isn't that okay? Um, well, now we have the evidence, right? Most of these trials we talked about used low-dose aspirin, and we saw that the bleeding risk was significantly higher. And so even though low-dose aspirin can, can cause bleeding, again, that low is probably a, a misleading um, adjective. 
And what about the buffered aspirin or the enteric coated aspirin? Certainly that is going to mitigate some of that risk because now we're passing that drug along through the stomach and it isn't being broken down in the stomach and causing those big bad ulcers, right? Right. That's what you think, right? Uh, and that EC or buffered aspirin is basically a misnomer. It has nothing, the, the way GI bleeding with aspirin occurred has nothing to do with the, um, the buffered or the enteric coated property. It has to do with the, the pharmacologic property of aspirin. As you explained earlier, the thromboxane inhibition happens and therefore the protective mechanism of GI mucosa is, is compromised. And that's where the bleeding comes from. And I think that as part of that discussion with that provider in terms of them being worried about taking away something that decreases cardiovascular risk, that's a great time to talk about other strategies that do work that don't put that patient at harm in terms of reducing that patient's overall risk of future cardiovascular events. Right. And we talked about how these three randomized controlled trials had patients with statin on there. So we were talking about other strategies. We know that these patients were on statin, but there were no subgroup analysis to look at whether statin conferred any different benefit or added to the benefit that aspirin provided. So there is actually another study uh, in process that looking at aspirin and some of statin use. Hopefully we'll get some more uh, enlightenment, but the provider can talk to the patient about other preventative strategies such as add in statin if they're appropriate candidate, lifestyle changes, right? Diet, exercise, smoking cessation, um, better blood pressure control, better blood glucose control, etc. can help lower overall cardiovascular risk. And then, you know, we've already mentioned it a number of times, but I just want to reemphasize that we're only talking about primary prevention here. As a student, I frequently get these two topics confused and kind of brush them under the rug and put them in the same group. But it really is critically important to say that we're only talking about patients that have never had a cardiovascular event. That's what we're talking about. This does not apply to someone who's had a heart attack or a stroke or some other ASCVD event who probably is indicated for aspirin. Right. And that's a whole nother podcast episode one, two, and three to talk about. But yes, we are here only talking about somebody who never had a cardiovascular event although they could have risk factors for having those cardiovascular events in future. So in, in kind of just summarizing what we discussed today, uh, we know that the previous evidence for aspirin use in, in primary prevention has been kind of all over the place. We talked about how the guidelines were all over the place. But now with the new randomized controlled trials in 2018, we have more light on the area. And we know that the benefit of adding aspirin in primary prevention does not outweigh the risk in most newly available evidence. And based on the newest data that we do have, routine use of low-dose aspirin for primary prevention in elderly patients above 70 years of age is not recommended. And it's also not recommended in those who have a higher bleeding risk because of this balance between bleeding risk potentially outweighing the cardiovascular benefit that a patient may derive. So who is it really recommended for? It, the used really should be reserved for those uh, with age group of 40 to 70 who have high ACVD risk, including those with um, diabetes. So we're looking at ACVD risk of greater than 20% for non-diabetic patients and greater than 10% for patients with diabetes. And I love the fact that now we're really moving forward to a discussion with the patient about their risks and benefits of drug therapy and a potential for excellent opportunity for shared decision making. So again, an individualized approach is 
probably the, the answer here, right, in terms of risk factors for bleeding, risk factors for future cardiovascular events, and kind of taking that into context of whether a patient should be started or discontinued from aspirin. Absolutely. Again, we're talking about primary prevention, so it, this is not even encompassing any of the patients who have had an event and need to be on a vital medication like aspirin. Well, again, we, we have all of the references available at our website, uh, helixtalk.com. This is episode 97. And then finally, we love the five-star reviews in iTunes. We love hearing from listeners about what they want to hear more of. So if you have an episode that you really think would go well with the podcast, email us. Our contact information is on the website. We'd love to hear from you. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane. And I'm Dr. Patel. And with that, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.